morning, everybody. The reading today is from from Mark two, chapter. Cha- sorry, from Mark chapter two, verses thirteen <coughs> to twenty-two. Jesus calls Levi or Matthew. Then Jesus went out to the lake shore again and taught the crowds that were coming to him. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. Later, Levi invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and others disreputable sinners. There were many people of this kind among Jesus' followers. But when the teachers of the religious law saw who... Excuse me, but when the teachers of religious law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with tax collectors and other sinners, they asked his disciples, Why does he eat with such scum? When Jesus heard this, he told them, Healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick Sick people do. I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. A discussion about fasting. Once, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, Why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? Jesus replied, Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them. But someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Besides, Who would patch old clothing with new cloth? For the new patch would shrink and rip away from the old cloth, leaving an even bigger tear than before. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins, for the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. New wine calls for new wineskins. I don't know about you guys, but there are times in my life where I have had a certain level of expectation but maybe the person, the other person didn't understand that level of expectation. They had their own level of expectation. Here's, here's what I mean by this. I, I have, I think, an expectation that when somebody is hired to do a job, they will do it well. But sometimes the person coming to do the job does not have that expectation, right? There is that wonderful phrase that I learned very quickly here in Ireland that is both your best friend and your worst enemy, right? Ah, sure, it'll be grand, so, right? You know, like, okay, we know, right? Sometimes that can be your absolute best friend. You know, there are times where that has bailed me out for sure, right? But there are also times where it has frustrated me beyond belief, you know, when like I have expectations that someone will do a job to a certain level and they look at it and they go, ah, oh, sure, it'll be grand, so, right? You know, like, Expectations, right? How good, you know, how, what level should the job be done? Two people have very different expectations, right? I think when we lived in Drogheda, we lived in this, uh, this apartment that had been built during the Celtic Tiger. And, uh, and so, I mean, like, you know, things were just thrown together, pieced together every which way. And, I, and I, it always bothered me in, in like, the, the kind of the downstairs toilet. Somebody who had been doing, like, you know, the trim around, around the floor had cut two pieces that were supposed to fit together, right? They cut them at 45 degree angles to fit them together, except that they cut them wrong. So instead of like meeting like this, they met point to point. And that person installed it and went, ah, sure, it'll be grand. (laughs) And and every time I looked at that, I thought, who's the guy who signed off on this, right? Or, Or I think, you know, for me now in life, I'm learning that oftentimes my children have an expectation about how a room should be cleaned and it is different from the expectation that I have, right? So they come out and I say, is your room clean? And they say, yes, of course, we clean the room, it looks great. And then I walk in, and my level of what looks great is very different from theirs, you know? Like theirs involves putting away as little as possible and leaving as much as possible still on the floor, right? So, so there's these things like, we know this, right? That there are like unmet expectations, that we have expectations often that we place on people for the way things should be. And, and I think, you know, like in, in the, you know, with my kids in their room, you know, I, I give them those expectations. I say, this is what I expect, right? And oftentimes they then have a different idea. 
And I think that we tend, as a culture and as people, I just think naturally as people, we tend to gravitate towards this way of, of viewing, uh, viewing God. In other words, we look at God and we say, we, we kind of, we say, well, as long as I'm a good person, right? And we assume that what I think is good is going to be the same as what God thinks is good and right and just, right? And so, so we live our lives with this kind of idea that says, so long as I'm a good person, then God will accept me. But the problem with this idea of like being a good person is that we don't necessarily, if we try and, we try and do it, but, but typically our idea of what a good person is just comes from us. It's what we think is a good person. We don't even ask, what does God say is a good person? Or what does God expect of his people? We just think, Oh, well, as long as I'm a good person. And the problem is, is that it leaves us kind of drifting, you know, almost drowning in this sea of like a world where I'm supposed to be a good person, but I don't actually know what it really means to be a good person outside of myself and my definition of good. And so for many of us, I think this concept creates an anxiety. This concept, this idea of like, I'm supposed to decide what's good, it creates these nagging questions of, is what I think really good? In those moments of like deep introspection, when you are by yourself, your phone has lost all of its battery, you're out in the middle of nowhere, and you finally have that moment of silence, and it's like that nagging question, am I good enough? Have I been good enough? It leaves that question, how good is good enough? And this, I think, is the question that so many people then, if, if they have some sort of vague belief in God that says, I need to be a good person. I would say what, what many people would classify as, I am spiritual, right? I need to be a good person. I believe there's a God out there. And as long as I'm a good person, he will accept me, right? So we come up with, in our minds, some sort of acceptable minimum, I think, that from day to day allows us to have like, some level of like, some semblance of peace, Right? This is like, okay, well, as long as I'm meeting these standards, then, then I'll be good. But again, in moments of introspection, we know we don't even measure up to our own standard of good. How on earth could we measure up to God's standard of good? So I think what's happened really in our culture, and I, and I have a word for this. I think for many of us, what we've done is we have Oprah-fied God. All right, we've Oprah-fied God. Is everybody familiar with Oprah? I think that's like, he's like a universal person, right? You know, famous like talk show hostess who like, you know, I don't know, she writes all kinds of self-help books and, you know, gives, her, gives away cars on her show and all kinds of like crazy stuff. There's, there's some really great gifts if you're interested, um, Oprah gifts. Uh, but anyway, what I mean by this is we've decided many in our culture, and I think to a certain degree, you and I do this. If we're not careful, we will naturally do this. We, we've decided kind of arbitrarily that God really, what he wants for me is to be happy. And so as long as I'm nice, right, as long as I'm kind and I don't harm other people, that's pretty much good enough. So Jesus really is more of a self-help guru in, in, the, style of, in the style of Oprah. And and so we live with this be a good person as our moral standard and then drown in the sea of uncertainty about what it means to be a good person. And this is the anxiety, I think, that many of us feel in our world, the tension that many of us feel. And even those of us as Christians, I think, sometimes can feel this same pressure, this same anxiety, that question, whether or not am I a good person, and doubts that creep in about whether I'm actually all that good. But here's what's interesting, because that's, I think, one end of the spectrum, right? That kind of views God as this sort of like, you know, Oprah character, or the, you know, all God really wants from me is me to just be happy, do whatever makes you happy, as long as you don't hurt anybody, right? And what's interesting then is we find, I, I would say, the, the ultra-religious, maybe, version of that on the other side of the spectrum. And this is what I think we see in the text, right? We see the Pharisees, right? And they've got some... They've got some ideas about what it means to be good and to do the right thing and what it means to be saved. Now, just a side note, for the sake of time, I'm not going to nuance everything about the Pharisees. I'm just going to overly generalize, okay? So for those of you who are like, well, actually, the Pharisees, okay, look, we can have this discussion afterwards. I don't know that any of you would do that to me, but look, look we can have this discussion because there's a lot with the Pharisees. They're a complicated bunch. 
But overall, here's what I'm saying. I think the malfunction that the Pharisees tended towards was this very legalistic, this is what you must do. You have to do these things. And if you don't do them, you're out. And if you're out, you're out. And we're not coming to get you. You know, sort of a thing. Like, we're, you know, we'll run you over on the, way, on the way to the destination. Like, we don't really care. Get out of our way. And, and it's almost like this idea, rather than Oprah, this view tends to look at God maybe as like a dictator. You know, obviously we've got a dictator, well, a, a stylized dictator in the news a lot here recently. Putin, right? You know that sort of thing? What happens when you cross Putin? What, what do we know? At least, you know, from, you get poisoned, right? Or something like that happens to you. You, know, you may have fled to England, but you still end up poisoned. You know, like all kinds of things. Like if you get in the way, you're getting run over, right? It's this, this view of God that tends to see him as like, in this like dictator, you must live up to my standard or you're going to end up poisoned. Or, or, you know, I think this is kind of where the Pharisees are in their view of God. I think they, they rightly believe in a God that has a set moral standard, but the problem is, is that they believe in order to, to satisfy this God, in order, in order to, to live in relationship with this God, you must do the right thing and prove to God and to others that you are serious. And in doing that, maybe even superior to other people, to think yourself superior to others so that you'll be honored by others and accepted by others. Now, here's where I'm going with this. Because it can be easy to say, well, I'm nothing like the Pharisees. Well, maybe you're more like the people who want to oprify God. But here's, here's the thing. This, this spectrum, on either end, the malfunction is pretty much the same. It's not all that different, right? If you're on this sort of like, you know, I, I view God like a self-help sort of person, you tend to look down on people who would say, no, there's a set right and wrong. This is what it is, you know people who would be maybe religious, you tend to look down on them and think you're better than them and to feel superior. And you use your position as a way to feel like you have a better, you're, you're better. And it's the same malfunction on this side, right? I know all the rules. I know I obey them. I have been good since, I've, you know, since birth. I've never disobeyed a commandment, right? And then you can look down your nose at those other people. But again, so, so there we go. We have pride at the heart of either end of these as a way to be able to look down sometimes on other people. I think both of these views, again, are essentially the same because they both kind of really end up at the same place. Be good and be accepted, and then so you will be accepted by God. Both, I think, are distortions of something that is true, about, of character traits that are true about God. I think each one of them actually gives some sort of realities about God just distorted, right? One, you know, the ultra-religious one focuses, I think, on God's holiness, on God's power, on God's control, his tight grip. You know, he is in charge and then takes that to an extreme. The other view tends to focus on things like, well, I just believe in a God of love, right? I just believe in a God of love a God of grace. But, but again, that's true. God is a God of love and grace. But what we must hold in tension in the middle is that God is also a God of power, a God of holiness, and yet a God of love and a God of grace. And I think those two things we see in the text, and as we read the story of Jesus, we see them come together most fully in Jesus Right? You think about the last story. Did we not see the power of Jesus to forgive sins and to heal this man? And yet the love and the grace of, this, of Jesus to say, your sins are forgiven. Get up and walk. Right? We saw those two together in tension. And I think that is the job, the difficult job as a Christian sometimes, is to hold these two things in tension, to say that God is holy and powerful, that he has a set and right and good moral standard, a way of life that he calls us to a vision of life. And yet, he's also a God of love and grace who understands that we fail and that we are sinners. Jesus will not allow us to go to either extreme. And I think this is important to set up our, our text because, again, I think what we see to some degree or another 
is two versions of that, right? We meet the Pharisees who are over here, and right, we meet Levi who's kind of over here, right? In this, more in this camp. And some of us are way over in this camp, and some of us may be way over in this camp, and most of us probably are struggling, you know, somewhere in the middle, you know, trying to figure out, but we probably lean more towards one than the other, and it's like that learning to hold these in tension. And so I just thought it was important that we kind of, we, we, we recognize that about ourselves, we recognize that about our friends and our family and the world that we live in, because as we share the gospel with people, we need to know, we need to realize which side of the spectrum do they lean towards, which side of the spectrum do they need to hear which side of the spectrum do I need to hear more? We need it all, but like, you know, what do I need to hear? And so as we look at this passage, we, we remember that. Now, as we get ready to kind of just walk through it, there's a couple things that I think are, are just interesting uh, textual notes, right? So, so the first one that I'm going to mention is this. Mark writes here in a really dramatic fashion. I like, I love this, okay? And you don't, you don't see it in your text. You're not, you're not going to see it because it's a confusing way to write for us in English. And so what the translators have done is that they've translated everything into the past tense as he tells the story. So it, it makes sense. But, you know, we, we've talked about Mark using phrases like often like immediately or and then and, you know, like, uh, you know, like that there's an immediacy about Mark's gospel, and he wants us, he wants to bring us into this story, Mark actually speaks often in these, in these two stories in the present tense. Okay, so just think of it this way. If you're, if you're in verse 14, it says, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Levi got up and followed him. What the, if you're going for a more direct translation, you might say something more like this. He saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at his tax collector's booth. So he says to him, follow me and be my disciple. You know, like, so it's, it's more of this kind of like, it's, it's again, it's in the first, it's like, so he says to him, like, it's happening right now. He's like bringing us into him. Like, this is what happens. As we go on, um, it, you know, 15, um, you might say, so now Levi invited Jesus and his disciples, rather than just like, Later, or how I don't know how, how your translation may put that. Some of them are, are a little bit different there. Or in verse 17, when Jesus heard this, he told them. Well, it's more like, <laughs> so Jesus says to them, when he, you know, when he heard him, Jesus says to him, like, you know, it's, it's that first person. All right, so just kind of, verse 18, I'll just say the last one here, verse 18. When, once when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked. All right, so came and asked are actually present tense. So they come and they say, or you know, they come and they ask Jesus. It's that sort of idea. Anyway, just interesting. I think it's interesting. Um, it just kind of gives an immediacy to it. The other thing that I wanted to point out um, is just the new living takes a little bit of liberty. And I want to point this out when we see it. So your translation, if you don't have a new living, does not say, why does he eat with such scum? Right? It probably says, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Or why does he eat with sinners? Right? Okay, so here's, here's what you need, need to understand. What the New Living there is trying to do is to help you understand what's, what, what the Pharisees mean when they say this. Okay? So when they talk about tax collectors and they talk about sinners, that's what they mean. That kind of like rubbish that we don't associate with. Yeah. The gum on the bottom of a good man's shoe. You know, it's that sort of like, that's what those people are. Right? Okay, and so that's, that's why the, it says eat with such scum. Again, I understand what they're doing. I, but anyway, that's, so yeah, it helps you get the idea. Anyway. Um, so yeah, one, one final note. One final textual note. And, and we'll kind of come back to this again in a, in a second, is this. It says that Levi is the son of Alphaeus. Now, when we read um, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew tells us that this calling, that Levi and Matthew are the same person, which is why your Bible may say Jesus calls Levi and have Matthew in parentheses, right? They're helping you for clarity to understand they're the same person, right? It was often, it was common that people in, in Israel had two names. 
They would have two names. So one might be a nickname, or one might be like a Greek name, or something like that. Like I think about certain cultures, right? Um, you know, like when they move to another culture, you know, certain people when they move to another culture change their name just for the ease of like, you know, the ease of it, right? So I know a guy um, named Theo Douglas. His name is not Theo, it's Balaji. But people have a hard time saying Balaji, so he just told people like, hey, look, call me Theo. Right? So you, you kind of get those things. This happens. All right? And so you can have similar things happening here with like Levi and Matthew. Like people have um, Peter and Cephas. Like, um, so you can have like people that have multiple names, whether it's a nickname or whether it's, you know, anyway. So that's probably what's going on. But the interesting thing is it says that he is the son of Alphaeus. Now, if you read the Gospel of Matthew and you start going through the disciples, and, and I always think of it in the song, there were 12 disciples, Jesus called to help him, Simon Peter, Andrew, James, his brother, John. Philip, Thomas, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, Judas. So there's a lot of people that actually think Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, are brothers. I find that really fascinating. Now, it doesn't say it in the text, but if you look at the way Matthew orders his disciples, you have Peter and James, uh, sorry, Peter and Andrew, there we go, and James and John mentioned next to each other, right? And we know they're brothers. And in Matthew's gospel, you get Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, right together in a pair. And so a lot of people would say, maybe they're brothers. Whether they are or not, I don't know. Interesting fact. Um, could be. Um, anyway, just interesting side note that probably took more time than it needed to. All right, let's move. Okay, so like I said, Mark writes in dramatic fashion, and I think Mark con contrasts for us the Pharisees and Levi. Many of the Pharisees are seeking God, but the problem is, is that they think they can do enough to gain God's acceptance. They think that they can force God to move. So here's one of the things that we know about the Pharisees. There were many Pharisees who were very devout and wanted to follow God. But one of the ways that they felt like they could bring the kingdom of God is if they could do all the right things. Basically, they could force God's hand. If we can just do all the right things, if we can obey all the right rules, then God's kingdom will come. And what that means then is we have to be really, really zealous about obeying all the right rules. And anybody who is not doing that, we need to get as far away from, shove them as far away from Israel as we can possibly get them so that we can bring the kingdom of God. And so what turned into, I think, a desire to see the kingdom of God began to morph into this feeling that like, we can actually bring the kingdom of God. If we do the right things, then God must move. Because they were desperate. They were longing for this kingdom. And over hundreds of years, it had morphed into this sort of like, if we do the right things, then we can force God's hand to act. And again, we could probably get into like, some nuance there and understand where they're coming from. But that's just the reality of where things were in Jesus' day. They think that they can do enough stuff to gain God's acceptance, to force him to move. But Levi, on the other hand, seems to, take, seems to have chosen to take the more, like, if there is a God, he just wants me to be happy approach. Right? Because, like, let's think about this. He's a Jew. He's grown up since he was a little kid learning about God. His whole upbringing, he has been learning about God, memorizing the Old Testament. He knows all the Bible stories. He knows all the right answers in Sunday school. He knows all of those things. And yet at the end of the day, he said, no, thank you. I'd rather have money and status. Can you relate to him? Have you ever been there in your life at that point? where you've said that very same thing, maybe without saying it, but really you've said that very same thing as Matthew, as Levi. He chose to be a tax collector. Now, again, there's, there were all different kinds of tax collectors, and many people think that he may have been, um, because of where he lived, he was on the border between two kingdoms, um, right? Because remember, we have several Herods and you know, Herod's kids and all this kind of stuff. And so there were borders and taxes on those borders, and he was right at the Sea of Galilee, and fishermen had to pay a tax for fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And so there's a lot of people that speculate that even the disciples probably hated him because they had to pay him taxes, they knew him, and, right? But he chose that life. He chose to be a traitor, to say, you know what? I'm going to sell out my own country so that I can get rich, so that I can make a lot of money. 
That's what he did. And in that way, too, he said, I'm turning my back on God so that I can make a lot of money and have status. Levi had chosen wealth and power over God as he pursued wealth and money and really, I think, peace. He had walked away from God. And maybe you too have walked away. Maybe you were brought up in church, but chased other things. Why are you back? For the same reason, I think, when Jesus says to Levi, come, follow me and be my disciple, there is just something unbelievably compelling about the way of Jesus. The way Jesus just doesn't care about the religious leaders a whole lot, about what they say. Jesus knows God intimately. And he calls people to be his disciples. There is just something about the way that Jesus goes about with compassion, healing people, that Jesus goes about speaking truth into situations, that Jesus goes about exercising power, and yet he lived in a way that would have been completely powerless to the kingdoms around him. There is something compelling about Jesus' vision of life, I think. And it not only draws you and me, it drew Matthew, it drew Levi. And so we read, right, that when Jesus sees Matthew. He says, follow me and be my disciple. And it says, so Levi got up and he followed him. And, and I know like Mark speaks in the immediate, but it doesn't say like Levi packed up his things. You know, Levi made sure he stuffed all the money into his wallet. It doesn't say any of that. It doesn't say Levi gave his two weeks notice. It just says he got up and he left. Guys, do we think Jesus is, is that worth it? That we would like just get up and walk away from our life if that's what Jesus asked us to do? I'll be honest, I, I've had a hard time with that. I mean, in my life, like I, I remember there was a time where we were having visa trouble. And, and who knows, you know, it may, it, what if it was one of these points where Jesus was saying, that's it. That's enough. It's time to go home. It's time to do something else. I wasn't accepting that. And I remember one night, I was praying, and I was angry because it looked like we were going to have to move. And I didn't want to move. And I said to God, I cannot go back a failure. And it was at that moment I realized my reason for, wanting to go, for not wanting to go back was all about me. Is my own pride and my own selfishness. I needed that moment so badly, but it was a moment where I saw right there, was I willing to just drop whatever I was doing and say, okay, God, whatever you want. Nope, I wasn't. Even if that thing that I was doing, I thought I was doing for God, nope, I wasn't willing to just drop it. I'm not saying we need to be quitters, but I am saying this. When God asks you to stop doing something, do we, are we willing to stop? Are we willing to just put it down? Or already used children, uh, just broadly, my experience with children is when you say stop doing something, they keep doing it until you, they really figure out you mean business, right? You know, like, are we more like that? And so, there's something compelling about Jesus. And so I think here's what we see. What Jesus says to Levi is nothing short of extraordinary. He upends the common assumptions about sinners, about non-practicing Jews. And that's something you need to understand. This is like about non-practicing Jews or Gentiles. Like these are the people that they have in mind, right? The kingdom of God is not for those people. They are not invited. They are not welcome. They are on the outside. And if they want to change their ways, if they want to like, you know, get their lives in order, get everything together, um, and if they're a Gentile if, and a man and they want to go through some other things, then like then they can be a part of God's kingdom, but only then, right? And they certainly can't be a disciple for sure. And Jesus says, follow me and be my disciple. It's extraordinary. Sinners don't just have to get their lives together before coming to God. But rather, we can come to God as we are. 
And then we see this, that what Jesus does with Levi is nothing short of revolutionary. Right? You see the Pharisees, they don't get it. They don't get it at all, and they don't like it. They don't like it, they don't get it, they're upset. Jesus upends the common assumptions about being religious. Right? Because then he goes and he eats with Levi, and not just Levi, but all these other people who are still on the outside of the camp. You should not do that. Right? Remember Jesus, we're trying to make God come back. Um, <laughs> the irony there, but um, like, <laughs> remember Jesus, we're trying to make God's kingdom come. You know, like, what do you think you're doing? This is causing a problem. These are not the people we should associate with. Leave them be. You know, stay away from them. Come hang out with us. We're the cool ones, right? You know, like, it's that sort of thing. It blows their minds. Religious people should have never ate with sinners because to eat with people was to show acceptance. In, in that culture, to eat with people was to say, I'm with you, we're together, we're friends. Like, it meant something when you ate with somebody. It showed, a, it was a sign to everybody around you about how you felt about that person. And so I, we can't underestimate how revolutionary and how extraordinary what Jesus does in this story is. Jesus is not just calling Levi. He's not just calling Matthew to change his mind about some things. He's not just calling Matthew to quit his job. He's not just calling Matthew to maybe take a little bit different worldview or merely to modify some of his behavior or vote the right way. No, he says, come follow me and be my disciple, which means come follow me and do the things that I do. Be like me. Jesus isn't just calling us to change our mind about some things. He's calling us to be like him. Now here's, I just want to go back really, really quickly to what I said about the, the fact that like maybe, maybe Matthew and James, the son of Alphaeus, are brothers. It seems like James, he probably never walked away. He was a good Jew, good guy, lived a good life. And his brother, his brother had walked away. And maybe some of you have family like that. Maybe you're the one, you know, sitting in church, you, you read your Bible, you pray, you're, you're committed, you're in. Like you're saying, I'm going to follow Jesus. But you have family members that aren't. Right? They're, they're the, the, the sinners and the tax collectors of this world. And one of the ways I felt like the Spirit spoke to me, because I have family like that. I have family that, that grew up knowing all the right answers. I have family that, you know, like have all, you know, like they should know all the right things, but they're not following Jesus. And it breaks my heart. But at the same time, I can read this passage and I can say, Jesus isn't done with them. Jesus isn't done with them. And I can live with the hope that Jesus is pursuing them, that Jesus is calling them to come and follow him and be his disciple. And he will continue to do that. He loves them and he cares for them. They are not on the outside. And he's like not saying like, you know what? I'm done with you. Forget you. He's still beckoning and calling them to come and be his disciple. And I want that. If that can be a comfort to you, let it be a comfort to you. Because it was a deep comfort to me that the Holy Spirit spoke. I feel like to me in that, like ministered to me in that. Because I can get really discouraged about that. To see Jesus is not done with them. Jesus calls all. Jesus calls all to come to the table and to feast with him and to be his disciples. What Jesus is doing is something new, but it's consistent with the character of God. That, I think, is important. What Jesus is doing is something new and unexpected, but it's still consistent with God, right? If we think back to our God has a name series, who does God say he is? Compassionate and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, right? He's consistent with the character of God. Doing good has never been equal to acceptance with God. That was something the Pharisees got wrong, and Jesus is correcting. The grace, the kindness, and love of the all-powerful God calls us to lay down our lives in order to find them, to leave behind our past in order to follow Jesus. We come as we are, and this I think is important, we come as we are, but we don't stay that way. 
Too many of us want to come as we are and then stay as we are and never change. Because, right, grace, God accepts me, he just wants me to be happy, right? No, Jesus invites us to come as we are, but not to stay that way. He wants to change you. He wants you to be his disciple, which means you're not going to be the same person. And that's great news, <laughs> believe it or not. As great as you are, it's even better news that Jesus actually wants to make you more like him than you already are. Jesus wants revolution, I think. He's making all things new. And this is important. Jesus is making all things new. And so the Pharisees, like many of us, struggle to get their heads around this concept. Right? So we read here, um, they, they, they struggled in this moment, and then as we come down to this discussion about fasting. You know, I said one of the things that we clearly see in this calling of Levi is that Jesus is doing something new. He's doing something different. This is not the normal way that things have always been. He is upending the apple cart, right? He is saying, this is the way things are. I'm going to go to the people who are sinners, something the religious people never ever did. I'm going to invite them into the kingdom of God. I'm going to call them into the kingdom of God. And this won't be the last time we talk about that, but it's something new. It was to, to, to the Pharisees and the, you know, and the scribes. And then here we find Jesus again talking about how something, what God is doing now in Jesus is new. It's different. Once, when John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, some people came to Jesus and asked, why don't your disciples fast like John's disciples and the Pharisees do? All right, and then what we find is Jesus gives them an answer. We actually find the first parable in the Gospel of Mark. Um, but Jesus gives them an answer. He gives them three answers, actually. He doesn't just give them one. What he does is he gives them three metaphors. Sometimes there are things in this world that are just really difficult to explain, and the best way to explain them is metaphor. All right? So Jesus gives these metaphors these, to help them understand what he has come to do. Why do his disciples not fast? Right? That's the question, but he gives them a much bigger answer than just, why don't they fast? And I think it connects in to the previous passage that we've, just, that we've just walked through. So the three metaphors that Jesus gives, right? And if we go backwards, and I think actually it's almost more helpful to go backwards. New wine into old wineskins. New patch on an old cloth. And nobody fasts at a wedding. <laughs> right? All right, let's walk through each of these really briefly. Have any of you guys... I don't know, is it, uh, this is a safe place to answer this question. Have any of you guys ever had new wine? Is that like a, anything? You can get it in Germany. I admit nothing, but you can get it in Germany, right? Uh, new wine, okay? And it's different than old wine, right? For one, it's not nearly as alcoholic um, because it hasn't fully fermented. It's like that hybrid in between like grape juice and wine. Like it's kind of in that, that hybrid state, so it's super sweet like grape juice and yet a tiny bit alcoholic like wine. You know, it's, it's one of those, anyway, okay? So it's not done fermenting. That's what new wine is. It's not done fermenting. And you have to be really careful with new wine because what happens when things ferment? It creates a gas, right? As like the yeast or whatever, like eats the sugar and all that, like, and it turns into alcohol. I'm sorry, I'm not a scientist here, but it's, <laughs> I roughly understand, right? It creates a gas along with it, which then builds pressure, okay? So, like, imagine that in your mind. So, imagine you, you know, you're like, you know, 2,000 years ago and you drink your wine out of a bag. Some of you probably do. But, like, I'm just saying, like, you know, I don't know, boxed wine, whatever. Anyway, but, like, let's, let's imagine you've got a, you know, an old pigskin that you've filled with wine. You know, you've sewed it together, you've filled it with wine, and, and then eventually it expanded because it continued to ferment. And so, you know, you poured it out, like, it got all stretchy and way bigger than when it originally was. Um, Right, and then you poured out all the wine, and then you started making new wine. And you went, what do I do with that new wine? Well, I don't really want to butcher a pig, so I'll just, you know what, it'll be fine. I'll just pour it into the old one. Right, so you fill up the bag again, only this time the bag's already stretched out a little bit bigger, so you can fill it even more full. Right, and it's already stretched to its limit. And so then what happens is as you fill it, then the gas begins to build up. And then what happens? Your wine explodes everywhere out of like a pig, you know, <laughs> out of a pig skin. Right, it's, it's like... Every, you ruins your wine, right? And that's, that's Jesus' metaphor. This is what he says. 
Nobody puts new wine into old wineskins. For the wine would burst the wineskins, and the wine and the skins would both be lost. And nobody wants that. Right? New wine calls for new wineskins. In other words, Jesus is doing something new, and we need to make way for it. It's this idea. New wine is still fermenting. Right? So, then you go on to the next metaphor, right? I mean, Jesus pretty much explains these, right? New patch, old cloth. If you've ever sown, you know why this is a bad idea. I'm not a sower, but I do understand I've had clothes you know, that shrink in the wash, right? Um, you know, we've all probably had that shirt that after you wash it, it's never the same, right? It somehow became extra wide and super short, um, right? Uh, so this is like new patch, old cloth. Clothes shrink over time. No kidding, okay? So if you took a brand new piece of cloth that hasn't ever been washed and hasn't ever shrunk and you put it onto a, pat, onto a pair of uh, trousers at the knees or whatever because, well, you know, like if you put it on there, you sew it on there, what's going to happen? You're going to wash it. One is going to shrink. The other one's already shrunk. And so you're going to end up with a bigger tear. So instead, you need to make sure you use a patch that's already shrunk if you're going to put it on clothes that have already shrunk. Makes sense, right? Jesus says, that's why the Pharisees don't, that's why my, my, the real, sorry, my disciples don't fast. <laughs> okay, so these metaphors, like in isolation, start to sound a little bit strange, but here's the gist of it. The gist of it is, sorry, I'm like getting behind on my slides. There we go. So the gist of it is this. The old and the new are not compatible. I think what he's saying is this. You cannot have Jesus and works. They don't go together. The basic point Jesus is making is that the new and the old don't mix. People shouldn't be surprised when putting them together has unfortunate results. Right? When we try and match Jesus and grace and the gospel, right? when we try and match the good news of Jesus' saving death on the cross with works-based righteousness that says, I work my way to God, it doesn't work. It doesn't fit. Right? It's like putting wine in an old wineskin. Boom, there it goes. It's like putting an old, a new patch on an old pair of jeans. There it goes, right? That's what Jesus is saying. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. And so you shouldn't be surprised when putting them together has unfortunate results. Then Jesus, the first metaphor he uses, and again, backing up, is this. The, uh, nobody fasts at a wedding. Here's what you need to know about a wedding. And I've, I've learned this from, from Sam and other Indian, in, Indians we've had in church. It's probably more similar to an Indian wedding than it is to, uh, you know, one here in the West, like in Ireland or in America or whatever. Like, right, when we do a wedding, even, even here in Ireland, like, you know, it's an all-day event, right? But that's kind of it, you know? You, I mean, you, I guess, you know, you've got the stag or the hen, whatever, you know, before. But, like, for the most part, the celebrations are pretty much one day and it's over. Not so in the Middle East. Not so in places like India, right? It's a week-long celebration. It is a week-long celebration. Now, picture this. 2,000 years ago, Palestine was one of the poorest places in the Roman Empire. So when do you actually get really good food to eat? When do you get to celebrate? When do you actually feel full? Almost never, except at a wedding for a week. <laughs> Why on earth would you fast then? Nobody would fast then. Nobody in their right mind would fast then. You fast the week before. You fast the week after. You don't fast the week of the wedding because this is your chance. <laughs> this is your chance to go to the buffet line and just have as much as you can eat. Like, this is, this is the time, right? So, so think of it that way. When Jesus says, no one fasts at a wedding, right? Do the wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. Who wants to miss that? And so we find that, that Jesus sees himself as the groom and the people of Israel as the bride. Important note that I need, I need to make, even though I'm talking too long. The regular occurrence. The important note I need to make is this. You know, we talked about the Son of Man last week. But you know when you read in the Old Testament... Israel is often portrayed as the bride, and God is portrayed as the groom. And Jesus here portrays himself as the groom in this story. And I think that's significant. 
Right, when we come to Isaiah 54, 4 to 5, here's, here's just one instance. Fear not, you will no longer live in shame. Don't be afraid, there is no more disgrace for you. Now, now this is Isaiah speaking to the people of Israel. You will no longer remember the shame of your youth and the sorrows of widowhood, for your creator will be your husband. The Lord of heaven's armies is his name. He is your redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of all the earth. Again, we have this moment that I think should not be missed. It is significant that Jesus in this story, in this parable, presents himself clearly as the groom. Do wedding guests fast while celebrating with the groom? Of course not. They can't fast while the groom is with them, but someday the groom will be taken away from them and then they will fast. Let's talk about fasting for a minute because our last series was about spiritual disciplines and one of those was fasting. <laughs> so should we fast or should we not? Was I crazy a few weeks ago? Or, you know, like, you know, if I completely changed my tune? No. All right, a couple of things we need to understand about fasting. For the Pharisees, fasting is about demonstrating one's religious devotion. It was an outward thing, right? Jesus criticizes the way the Pharisees fast. I mean, if we think back, if we go to the other Gospels that we skip, we see Jesus fasting, right? If we go to Matthew, when he goes out into the desert, he fasts. So obviously, like, Jesus doesn't think fasting is all bad, right? But what he is saying is that the way the religious leaders are fasting, there's two things mainly that, that the Pharisees, why they fasted. One was to show that they were better than the sinners, right? The sinners don't fast. We do. This is one way we can show we are truly spiritually superior. And the other thing was as a way to bring the kingdom of God. They believed that their religious devotion and by fasting, they could hasten the day when the kingdom of God would come. They believed that their fasting could bring the kingdom of God, but also it was a mourning. It was a sadness, a longing for the kingdom of God. If we're looking at it from its best angle, it was a mourning of going, why, Lord, why? Come, Lord Jesus. Only, you know, they wouldn't have said that, but like, you know, come. Right? It was that same sort of like, it was a desire, a longing, an ache for the kingdom. So now that Jesus was there, God's presence was there in its fullness, in his fullness. Why would they fast? Why would they fast like that? That makes no sense. And so, while fasting for the Pharisees was about religious devotion, it was about the mourning for the kingdom, it was about trying to bring the kingdom, for Christians, it's not that way. Our fasting, when we read about it in Scripture, does not seem to be connected to mourning. It seems to be connected to God. It seems to be connected to a time of deliberate focus and prayer, to a time of discernment, a time for, for training the body, right? If you go to Acts 13 or Acts 14 and you read about fasting, it's in prayer and discernment for decisions they're going to make. They're fasting. The book of Acts doesn't say, and they really shouldn't have, you know, like it doesn't say that, right? And so I think what we have here is that the heart of the fast is what Jesus is getting at, saying, don't, no, celebrate while Jesus is here. And he says, they will fast. Don't worry, they're going to fast. Because what does he say? He says, and uh, someday the groom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, here's what I think he means by that. He's talking about his death. And that in-between time from the death and the resurrection of Jesus, it was a time of mourning. And it was right and appropriate and good to fast in the way that the Pharisees did as far as mourning is concerned. Mourning over Jesus' death. Mourning over what has happened to him. And they would fast. So, Jesus was actually taken away. He was crucified. He was dead and buried. But then the reality is that he rose again and ascended to the Father. And so we don't need to fast in, in mourning anymore. It was appropriate for the disciples to mourn in between, but it's now appropriate then for us to continue to fast, but for different reasons. And I think one of the main, again, um, sorry, we're just going to skip ahead. But there was the slide. Jesus saw himself as the focus of a celebration. So I think we've cleared that up. Um, here's just kind of the, 
the way I want to end. There we go. We look back to Jesus as a one-off event, right? What Jesus did, that was unique. It was him. It was a one-off thing, a one-off moment when God did a great new thing that had long been promised. And because of that, everything is different as a result of what he did. But unfortunately, sometimes we still tend to try and combine the gospel and the old things. We still tend to try and, you know, put new wine into old wineskins or sew new patches onto old jeans or whatever. We still do that. And yet, Jesus comes bringing forgiveness for our sins when we do that. And he calls us, he beckons us, be my disciple. Know me and be my disciple. And so I just want to ask this final question. What do I believe will make me a part of God's kingdom of of feasting? Is it my works or is it his grace? And I think this is an important question. No matter how long you've been a Christian, we need to ask. And then I think it's important that we meditate on this passage. You know, I think it would be good like, to sit with this passage and, and to really let the Holy Spirit speak to us. Let the goodness of Jesus that we see in this passage set into your heart. Let these metaphors sit with you for a while and stew. He's come to do a new thing, to open up God's kingdom to all who would believe and follow him. And so we come to a time of communion. Here's one of the cool things about communion. You know, I said eating with others was a sign of acceptance, right? We saw Jesus eating with sinners. Eating with others was a sign of acceptance. At communion, I love this, at communion, you and I eat with each other. We recognize, like all of us fail, and we've probably failed each other at different points, and we will fail each other if we haven't already. Like, it's... But it's a sign of acceptance. It says, you're my brother. You're my sister in Christ. We are united together under Jesus. And Jesus has accepted us. We accept others based on the way Christ has first accepted us. We love because he first loved us. So I want to finish as as we prepare for communion just by reading Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 12 and 13. All right, and then I'm going to pray for us and we can take communion together. In those days, you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel. And you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. But now, You have been united with Christ Jesus. Once you were far away from God, but now you have been brought near to him through the blood of Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,